Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from the Westin in Long Beach, California. I've been coming to Long Beach for, my goodness, 47 years, since I was a baby working for Newsweek magazine in Los Angeles. And when I first came down here, there was a ship parked here, and it's still here. It's the Queen Mary. And... One of the heaviest and most popular visited attractions in the city. And my next guest began his career on that ship 37 years ago and is still there today. He's the Commodore of the Queen Mary, Captain Everett Hoard. How are you? I'm well, Peter. So good to see you. I called you Captain. It's really Commodore. Oh, it's all good. I'll, I'll t- you'll, t- you'll take Commodore. <laughs> I'll take you? everything. <laughs> yes, and I'll salute later on. Um, it, it was, it was a, a great publicity stunt at the time they first brought it in. I don't know if they ever really thought it would last this long, but it has. You know, Peter, I don't know if anyone could have known that the Queen Mary would still be here in Long Beach 51 years after Captain Jones dropped her off here along with his thousand passengers. But over these years, the popularity of the ship has grown and continues to grow. And these days, we're seeing between 1.6 and 1.8 million visitors every year. 
And for people who don't know this, this is not just a museum you go to visit. You can stay overnight. You can eat. Uh, it's a hotel. Uh, how many people got married there last year? Oh, well, we're doing about 250, 260 weddings every year. About half of them I officiate myself, <laughs> which is a great pleasure of the job. All right. Has anybody ever stood up and opposed the marriage? Not yet. <laughs> but you still have to say those words. Uh, well, no, we don't, we, don't, we don't leave that in the script. Oh, that's gone now. You're yeah, just, yeah. Oh, you're covering your bases now. Okay. Oh, exactly. Yes. Okay. <laughs> but it's a very popular destination. Now, this, as popular as it is, talk about maintenance. This ship requires 24-7 maintenance. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, it's 81,237 gross tons of biodegradable materials floating in salt water. So we never get done uh, taking care of the ship. It's an ongoing thing, but it is a labor of love, and the ship has become such an icon, not only to our city, but Southern California. I've always felt that the ship was our Eiffel Tower, our Big Ben, our Statue of Liberty. It's such a symbol of our community now. Um, how many people have had their proms there? How many people have been married there? Um, how many Christmas celebrations? How many, how many celebrations? I mean, even Michael Jackson had a big birthday party back in the 70s when. So it, it, there's always something new and interesting going on at the ship. To me, uh, and I had a chance to, uh, it's another story I'll explain later, but I got a chance to helicopter myself today I, I flew the helicopter right over the top of it uh, over the queen mary and of course what do i see the distinctive three stacks right you don't yes. see ships with three stacks anymore no the queen mary was the last three stacked liner in the world and to my knowledge it's the only one left in the world and those funnels which are biggest but one castles, of them was or was ornamental wasn't it um, well, actually, Peter, the Queen Marys are all functional. There were some ships that did have some ornamental ones, like the Normandy. Her third yes. one was ornamental. But uh, in the Titanic, her fourth one was ornamental. A lot of good it did that ship. Uh, yeah, well, you know, in the number of funnels, a lot of people think that the Titanic is just so much larger than the Queen Mary because it had four funnels. Um, but, you know, that was really went back to the, to the mindset of the immigrant. They felt in those days, if ships had more funnels, that they were larger and safer to travel in. Well, same thing happened with airplanes. Uh, you know, until we got much more efficient air engines, uh, every plane had to be four engines. In fact, there's still a law that the United States president can only be flown on a plane that has four engines that's built in the United States. That's why the president continues to get flown on a 747, because the only plane still made in the United States with four engines is the 747, and Boeing has kept up the production line that they even wanted to close on the 747 to produce two more of the Air Force One type planes before they shut the production line down. So same thing happened with, with planes. Mm. It's my dream someday, Peter, to see the queen of the sky do a low overpass of the Queen of the Seas over there. Well, they better hurry up because Delta's retired theirs, United's retired theirs, so if it was the Queen of the Sky to do it, you still have a chance with British Air. They still have a flight that leaves Los Angeles every day that is a 747. Well, the other flight is an A380, so you still have a shot, but you better talk to them soon. I will. Yeah. What's the biggest surprise to you after 37 years being on the Queen Mary about the ship? The biggest surprise is that she lives, that she's still viable, and that, uh, that she's still so popular uh, to so many. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. 
If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me. I always me. like to ask the locals where they go and what they do, and my next guest knows a little bit about that. He's the uh, executive editor of an improbable name of a newspaper, but we love it, the Grunion Gazette. And if you don't know what a Grunion is, then you don't live in Southern California, but we'll talk about that later. His name is Harry Saltzgaver. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. All right. Let, let's solve the mystery. Tell everybody what a Grunion is. A grunion is a little silver fish who comes up on the beach to, uh, let's say, procreate. And they have grunion runs out here. All the time, yeah. And you'll see people on the beach with their pails and running after these fish, right? Yeah, actually people eat these things, uh, but it is a lot of fun to just go out and watch (laughs) them do what they do. What's for dinner tonight, honey? Not grunion again. (laughs) Have you ever eaten a grunion? I have to say I have not. And how long have you been the executive editor of the Grunion Gazette? A little more than 26 years now. And not a grunion in your body? No, it's true. I've been out hunting them a few times, but I haven't eaten one. <laughs> the elus- that explains your last cover story, the elusive grunion. There you go. I know. <laughs> but in, in this 26 years, let's get serious, Long Beach has gone from essentially a sleepy community. It was sleepy. Mm-hmm. To, like, cutting edge. Right. Why? How? Well, actually, because the Navy left and because the... Uh, aerospace industry left. And, and I remember, by the way, my, my grandfather was Donald Douglas's assistant. Mm-hmm. So I came down, when I was growing up, I was down in Long Beach all the time, and in Santa Monica, because that's where Douglas really was, but the, they were mm-hmm. working down here. Right. Watching them build the DC-9s, the DC-10s, mm-hmm. the tankers, all that stuff. Right. Yeah, when Boeing bought the Douglas, uh, they slowly just took everything away. Uh, they left the passenger jets first and then the last thing that was built the military was the military the c-17 exactly yeah and they're gone now too well i was out at the airport today and so many of those hangars uh are either being repurposed or they're empty that's right yeah it is still a very uh strong general aviation airport oh listen it's a great alternate airport for anybody i mean i mean you don't have to wait the security lines are a breeze (laughs) Uh, and for those people who don't remember this, go back and look at the movie Casablanca, the last scene in the movie right. with Humphrey Bogart walking out in that very foggy night with Ingrid Bergman as that plane was ready to take off. All of that was shot right here at the airport, right? We'll always have Paris. That's right. Or we'll always have Long Beach, if the truth be told. Exactly. Right? And they still don't have jetways here. Right. You still go up and down the planes the old-fashioned way. That's right. You have to climb the stairs. You do. You do. So the airport is actually a good example of what's happened to Long Beach altogether. It's still got the Art Deco uh, terminal that you were talking about, but at the same time, it's cutting edge in terms of the passenger terminal. And let's talk about what happened, God, 18 years ago with JetBlue. Mm -hmm. You know, they they did something very, very smart. They were trying to start Transcon service as a new airline, Mm -hmm. and they knew L.A. was congested. They knew San Francisco was congested. There weren't very many slots available. And they looked around and they said, what's an airport in California that has available slots? Well, there are like 32 of them at Long Beach. Mm-hmm. And so the owner of JetBlue, or the manager, a guy named David Nealman, came out and said, you know what? We'll take all 32. Mm-hmm. And they did. And it drove the other airlines batty. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yet JetBlue made it work. I remember American Airlines came in with four flights a day to Long Beach with triple mileage. They couldn't compete. Right. JetBlue is the dominant carrier. Right. Still is. Uh, the thing that they did when they started flying, it was August 29th, 2001. Yeah. 
You might remember what happened 13 days later. I was on the, listen, August 29, 2001, I did that show live for the Today Show with me on the very first plane at Kennedy as it was taking off for Long Beach yeah, right. wow. with David Nealman, who was yeah. the chairman. Right. And, you know, 13 days later, right? You're right. September 11th. But they persevered and made it through, and they've made it a, really a success, I think. Yep. And the airport works. Yes. Still does. I know. I mean, if you look at Southern California airports that work, Burbank works, uh, Long Beach works, and I have to give a little credit to San Diego. They still work, mm. even though they've, they've done some pretty rapid expansion. Mm-hmm. Um, LAX, I'm sorry, doesn't cut it, uh, either in design or actual you know, function. Right. Um, and that's just Southern California. Ontario's had their problems. A lot of people were pulling out. Um, and the concessionaires were dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sooner or later, they'll come back because they have a big population base in that area. But Long Beach is the secret airport. You can even fly, what, Long Beach to Hawaii now. Right, yeah. Right? Hawaiian Air started six months ago, yeah. something like that. So that's all very cool. Right. Okay, but other than the airport, mm-hmm. <laughs> what's changed? Well, the entire waterfront has changed. Yeah. Uh as I said, when the Navy left and uh, when the aerospace left, we had to reinvent ourselves. And the mayor at the time, Beverly O'Neill, uh, touted tourism, trade, and retail. And uh, she started the entire renovation of the waterfront. Now we've got maybe the best aquarium in the world. Uh, we've got waterfront restaurants, the waterfront, lots of waterfront entertainment. And of course, we've got, still got the Queen Mary. Yeah, so, Spruce Goose has flown. Well, not really time. flown, but it's been trucked. <laughs> well, it got taken apart. <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah. A, a plane that only flew once? That's right. Only flew once. Still a tourist attraction, I believe, in Oregon. It is. That's where it is now. But I remember the old newsreels. Howard used at the controls, mm-hmm. and it got maybe, what, 18 to 20 feet off the, off the water? About that, yeah. And that was it. Yep, and then Air Force said, see ya, and he went, see ya, and that was that. <laughs> yeah. That was a big plane. It was, and now we still got the dome, and there's a different travel industry in there right now. But what Long Beach has embraced is the reality of the importance economically of travel and tourism. Absolutely. As I mentioned, the dome is now uh, Carnival Cruise Line's uh, major departure area for this for this area of the country. We're talking to Harry Seltzgaver, who's the executive editor of the Grunion Gazette. Do you actually publish Grunion recipes? No, we don't. Oh, I, I, I had to ask. Okay. <laughs> we do publish Grunion Run times, though, occasionally. <laughs> sort of like, here's the tide table, and here's when the Grunion are running. Exactly right. For somebody who's never been to Long Beach, and they come for the first time, or people who come in to visit you as friends and relatives, what's the one thing that surprises them the most when they get here? I think the diversity, uh, the diversity of things to do and places to go, people to see, things to eat. Uh, we Again, we're a great sub- secret when it comes to uh, diverse food. We've got everything from Vietnamese and Thai to upper-scale uh, steakhouses. So, and the number of restaurants has grown exponentially. Oh, definitely, yeah. It's the one thing that seems to survive no matter what. You know, the one challenge of any community that's growing as fast as you are, are how do you balance that growth when you also have people like Airbnb and Uber and Lyft coming in and all of a sudden taking away, or at least the accusation being taking away from the traditional travel businesses? Mm-hmm. Well, we're 
experiencing some of that, but I don't think not a whole. I don't think a whole lot. We have seen a boom in hotel uh, construction in the last couple of years. Uh, there's one going up right now, over by the airport, and uh, we're seeing a couple others who should start in the next year here downtown. So the growth continues always. Yeah. All right, but now, Harry, you got to make me a promise. Yes, sir. The next time you go grunion running, you got to send me a picture of you with a grunion. Okay, I'll do that. Are you telling me the truth? I am indeed. Are you going to do it? Of course I will. <laughs> because my audience needs to know what a grunion looks like. Well, think sardine only a little bigger. And you got it. The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. My next guest has the dream job of all dream jobs, um, and if I wasn't doing what I was doing, I'd probably be hanging out with him every day of the week. He's the president and CEO of the Aquarium of the Pacific right here in Long Beach, Dr. Jerry Schubel. How are you, sir? I'm fine. Thank you for inviting us. I remember when you opened, and I remembered all the exhibits from, from day one, uh, and you always basically proclaimed yourself to be an interactive experience. And we're more interactive now than we have ever been. And I remember when the Monterey Aquarium opened up in, in Northern California, their big attraction was I could go pet a jellyfish and I could go pet a starfish. You go beyond that, don't you? You can pet a shark at our place. We were the first <laughs> aquarium in the country to let you pet a shark. The shark doesn't pet you? <laughs> so far, we haven't lost any fingers or hands. What, what kind of shark is it? Well, they're small sharks, but they're all kinds of, of little sharks, maybe three feet long. I mean, you've taken this aquarium, I mean, in terms of your attendance, in terms of its popularity, it's like, I would have to think it's the main attraction here in Long Beach. Oh, it is by far. Last year, we had 1.72 million visitors. We'll end this year about the same. Next year, after we open our new wing, we'll have 1.8. And then when we have the new wing open for a full year, we expect the top 2 million visitors. And this is not your first aquarium. No, this is not my first aquarium. <laughs> I was at the New England Aquarium for seven years. And this aquarium is different because? Well, I think being in Long Beach gives us the opportunity to create a very different kind of an aquarium because there's, there's no science center in this city of nearly half a million people. And so we've been able to combine the best of aquariums with the best of science centers and even incorporated some of the qualities of art museums. That's so you're, you're not just an aquarium that people can just go and watch. You're, you're a teaching institution. Very much. We're very much a teaching institution for people of all ages. We have programs for kids, for adults, and uh, we have a lecture every week. We have an aquatic academy that gives courses in the spring and the fall. So, yes, we're a teaching institution. Now, I remember in Atlanta going to that aquarium, which is amazing, um, and seeing the albino, well, I guess they're whales. Yes. Um, what would be your star attraction here? Well, sharks are always the most the most popular, and uh, and sea otters and penguins are are close. I think though we we have all the quality. Well, sea otters are cute. They're cute. They're they're also penguins are also cute, but yeah. penguins are nasty. Well, I have to tell you, sea otters are nastier. <laughs> <laughs> I remember dealing with penguins, and I had to have gloves up to my up to my shoulders, heavily reinforced, because they'll just they'll just bite you to death. Yes, and otters will smile at you and then bite you. And you're speaking from experience. <laughs> well, I've never had one bite me, but uh, we have had people. You saw you've seen the deceptive smile. Uh, yes, yes. 
But you say the sharks are your number one attraction. I would say so, yeah. But really, as I say, what makes us different, we have, we have all the qualities that one would expect of a great aquarium. Live animal exhibits of fish, marine birds, marine mammals, invertebrates, but that's only the beginning. It's all of these other things that we've added on, not only the interactivity, but for example, with our expansion, it focuses entirely on the one animal on this planet that's putting all the other animals at risk. And that's, that's us. us. That's I, us. I knew you were going there. And, and it will have some live animal exhibits, but the focus is on us and our, the changing relationship of people with the earth and the world ocean and what it's going to take to get us back onto some track to, to I, sustainability. Well, I saw the story the other day that, that really bothered me, and I'm sure you saw the same story and it bothered you, about the dead whale and what was in its stomach. Yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff in the ocean. A lot of it is plastic, abandoned fishing gear and so on that animals ingest. Um, And and that's a serious problem. I think a more serious problem, though, that's harder to correct is the warming of the ocean, getting it more acidic, and also the loss of oxygen in the ocean at all depths. And how do you possibly control that? Well, we, we focus a lot on that. And there's no single simple answer but it's very clearly the science is clear about climate change what's less clear is what do you do about it it's obvious that we have to reduce and probably eliminate any further emissions of greenhouse gases but there's a big enough inventory of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that we're going to have to be bold and courageous and figure out how do you remove it and lock it away so we can go back to a climate that we people can thrive in but we're seeing change right now negatively at an almost exponential pace. That's right. That's a, the, the world is changing more rapidly than at any time in the 200,000 years of human history. And many animals and plants can't keep up. That's why the people say we're on the verge of the sixth math, mass extinction. So we have to slow down the rate of change and let nature catch up. We're talking with Dr. Jerry Schubel giving us the enlightening and very heartening news, but stuff we have to pay attention to, the president and CEO of the Aquarium of the Pacific. I've always said, doctor, that if you can't measure something, you can't manage it. Uh, You take an active role in letting the public measure things. Yes, we do. We have citizen science programs that involve people. They're identifying um, uh, whales on some of the harbor breeze cruises. They're identifying turtles, green turtles. Are you tagging the whales too? So, no, we're, we're working with other organizations that, that do tag that. whales, and right. so we keep an inventory. Amazing. And then also, um, I'm going to assume this now, you say you have programs for kids. Do you have sleepovers? We do have sleepovers. All right, now we're talking. We have sleepovers not only for kids, but for families and adults. And what happens during the sleepovers? <laughs> uh, the sharks get up and dance. No, no. Well, no, the octopus no. comes out. The octopus. Oh, come on, stop! And uh, they don't. They hide a lot, but at night they come out and uh, display their colors. They really do. And, and yes, they do. You know, one of the, the things that we've tried to do. You, you, you've heard that Long Beach is this wonderful d- city with a lot of ethnic diversity, and we get the most ethnically diverse audience of any aquarium in the world, and we work hard at that with festivals, more than 12 a year, that bring people in. um, We turn the aquarium over to different groups for weekends, and the only thing that we require is they talk a little bit about what their culture means to the ocean, or the ocean means to them, and 
and uh, you know there are what there are these places that are called third places in society the places we live places we work and then the third place is places where we gather, get together, exchange ideas. And if we don't do that, we lose society. We lose society. And so we've become the third place in downtown Long Beach. I have to tell you a, a sort of an admission. You, know, you mentioned Octopus. When I was growing up, I remember the movie. It was Peter Laurie was in the movie. It was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And what do I remember most about the movie other than Peter Laurie talking like this? <laughs> I remember the octopus, right. that giant octopus, right. remember? Right, that was a squid, but there's not an octopus. Oh, that's thank, okay. thanks that's a lot, doctor. <laughs> I've lived all my life worried about octopus. <laughs> that's okay. But it, but it made an impact on me. And, and Peter Laurie was a good counterpart to, he, to he that was. squid. He yes. was. I always wanted to do a Peter Laurie film festival because he always talked like this, and I don't know about the octopus. Maybe it was a squid. <laughs> I, do you have a film festival? Well, we, we have a lot of films. And um, we're going to be having the North American premiere of a film, actually, on January the 6th. It's about the ocean, and um, we have panel discussions. And you heard earlier, I think, that we had one with the Cambodian community, Angelina Jolie. So we're a place where people like to come to have premieres of their films. And we actually have Aquaman coming. Uh, <laughs> now we're talking. And <laughs> And that's coming up in uh, about two weeks, I guess. Well, when you do the Peter Lorre Retrospective Film Festival and you do 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, you let me know so I can correct everybody. It's not an octopus. It's a squid. <laughs> all right. We'll get a hold of you. <laughs> now, you also do something uh, w with an aquatic academy. Yes. We have. This is a, a, something that we created maybe a decade ago. And we give a short course each spring and each fall. And they're spread over four weeks, and they are enough hours so that a teacher can get continuing education credit. And we, we limit the size to 45 students so they can have interaction with experts that are recruited from all over the country. And we always pick a topic that's complex, controversial, and timely. So we've done some on farming the sea, climate change, uh, genetically modified foods, and um, we just finished one a few weeks ago, and the title was How Will We Feed an Additional Two to Two and a Half Billion People by 2100? And that's such an important thing for me to talk about because, you know, when I go to the store and I want to buy salmon, there's the free-range salmon, if you will, the, the, the oh, wild right. salmon, right. and then there's the farm-raised salmon, and if you do your homework on how the salmon is raised in the farm, how they add the color, how all this other stuff is happening, and then you put that in context with how many people we have to feed, is there any way to reverse that cycle so that we're not all eating some questionable farmed fish? Much of the farmed salmon, is it's not questionable at all. It's, it's every bit as good of quality, good as taste. It's farmed sustainably. And, and the other thing is that wild salmon is only certain times of the year when there are wild runs, and it's much more expensive. If you are continuing on to another southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. My next guest is the executive director of a facility that's almost going to be 70 years old in about a year. And most people who come to Long Beach are not even aware it's here. And uh, it's got quite a story to tell. His name is Ron Nelson, and he runs the Long Beach Museum of Art. Hi, Ron. Hi. Almost 70 years old. Almost 70 years old. And for a bricks-and-mortar uh, institution, arts institution in Southern California, we're, we're old. Yeah. Yeah, but 
you're still below the radar. I mean, there are no, people just, you know, when they come to Long Beach, they're coming to a convention or maybe they're going to the Aquarium of the Pacific or they're visiting the Queen Mary. Yeah. Not that many people know you've got a great museum of art. Yeah, thank you. It is a great museum of art. Uh, we're located like 1.2 miles out of downtown. And sometimes that feels like, uh, you know, eons, but other times it, it happens very quickly for people to drive by us but not actually come in and, and, and take a look. So and we're working. What distinguishes your collection or collections? You know, the collection uh, since 1950 has always collected contemporary Southern California artists' work. That work in the 50s, 60s, and 70s uh, continued to be collected, but now that we're looking back at the 50s, and 60s, and 70s, it really does become an important collection because it really is who's who of all of those years together. So I'm assuming you have a Hockney. You assume correctly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just a lucky guess, but I'm, when you think of a definitive... Uh, California artist David Hockney would would come to mind. Yeah, absolutely. Who absolutely. else? Uh, well, we have um, uh, Claire Falkenstein. Uh, Claire was an amazing sculptor who's just now coming into her own. She worked a lot in Paris. She worked a lot in Venice with Peggy Guggenheim in New York. But she was a Long Beach girl, and she, you know, when I say girl, she died at 88, but she uh, did some really amazing pieces, and we've uh, been fortunate to have a number in our collection. Uh, we, uh, um, you know. Bob McLaughlin, and we have uh, uh, um, Henry Botero, and it goes on and on. It's a pretty, Botero? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What from Botero? It's a cat, actually. A very fat cat. How did you guess? <laughs> <laughs> it is a very fat cat. Yeah. What's the biggest surprise for people who come to the museum that they're not expecting to see? I don't think they're expecting the actual ground that it's on. Um, it's on a bluff overlooking the Pacific, and it's a wonderful, wonderful viewpoint. And I think once you have that mindset and once you recognize that coming in, it takes on a very special um, quality. And to be able to bring people inside after having this really wonderful experience with nature, even though it may be just a minute or two walk from the parking lot, um, is significant. And I think it really sets a tone for um, the museum itself. Now, in the museum world, and I'm sure you've been victimized by this, uh, and I was when I was a correspondent for Newsweek, because we're all west of the Hudson River. And there's that, you know, that, that continuing sentiment back in the east that there's no there there in California, as they used to say, that there's no culture out here. And you, I know you would beg to differ. I would beg to differ. Uh, there, what, what Paris became, or what New York became to Paris after World War II, uh, Los Angeles is becoming to New York. There are major galleries coming in and building large, large galleries. And this is at a time when the art market is really hot, but it's also changing because of the internet. So there are major, um, major players coming here to Los Angeles. And, and they want to be here. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Now, how would you define, it within that definition, classical art in the museum? Um, to define... Boy, putting definitions on that is going to be I know, difficult. I'm, and I, that's why I'm getting the question, I would presume. Uh, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You, you guessed correctly. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think that we, you know, we're fortunate also that we have a collection of European modernism from the 30s and 40s. And it's a significant uh, holdings also. And it's not just Southern California uh, with that. But we also, uh, we, we share that with the Norton Simon uh, in Pasadena, and we uh, loan those works out internationally continually. And uh, I think that those being thought of as 
um, classic pieces, uh, indeed, those uh, we do. But I also love being able to take a complete left-hand turn and have uh, everybody sort of expecting what's going to be inside, but then stepping inside and going, I had no idea I was going to experience that. And well, well, what surprised me about the museum is your archive of video art. It's huge. Uh, it's internationally. I can be anywhere in the world, and I will say what I, what I do and where I'm from. And though a lot of people don't realize we're there, they recognize that archive. And that was built over a period of uh, 25 years. Has uh, it all been digitized? It is in works. Uh, it's actually at the Getty. Uh, the archive was transferred to the Getty, to the GRI uh, Institute, uh, about uh, 12 years ago. And, they now, and they're still working on it. They are still working on it. And they're going to be working on it for a long time. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Joining me now, I love his title, the Chief Inspiration Officer, whatever that means, <laughs> of CAT. Uh, Justin Rudd, how are you, sir? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Now, I know you're a transplant from Alabama, so I'll speak more slowly. No, I'm kidding. Okay. I just did that for you. Okay. Uh, and I don't like your football team. But other okay. than that, <laughs> you know why? Why? They're a pro team. Yeah. Come on. They're they, pretty good, huh? They could beat most pro teams. They're pretty great. They're pretty great. Uh, but let's get into serious stuff. Cat. Cat. So I run a nonprofit organization called Community Action Team, which is an acronym CAT. We do a lot of DOG stuff, though. Um, dog stuff, uh, we help uh, clean the beaches, and we do uh, events and projects that help people, especially young people. Well, you do what they call beach boot camps. I do. So um, I've been teaching beach boot camps since I first moved to Long Beach, and I also teach at the local athletic club, the Belmont Athletic Club. Okay, what does that mean? So for beach boot camps, um, what it is is uh, we go on the sand and do push-ups and sit-ups and squats, and we run through sand, run stairs, jump over uh, concrete walls that are already standing. We use what's on the beach like sand dunes to run up and down sand dunes to work your legs and get your heart, heart rate elevated. So basically a paramedic standing by. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Everybody has a, a, a phone we can call 911. That's our paramedic. Well, that's very helpful. And lifeguards on the beach can all, also help anytime. All right, but let's, let's, let's get serious. I come to Long Beach to vacation or come to a convention right. or I'm down for the weekend. How do I get involved? Well, if you want to work with our organization, we do beach cleanups every single month. If you just want to go to the beach and uh, pick up some debris, I can help you with that. I can arrange bags and gloves. Um, but if you're here on the third Saturday every, of any month, and whether it's rain or shine, we're out there cleaning the beach at 10 o'clock. And that's where, you know, if you're going to be here then, that's where you meet everybody who lives here. Yeah. So, for example, uh, the last beach cleanup that we did, we had 200 and, uh, 270 volunteers out there. But an average beach cleanup would have about 150 volunteers. You know, it's been my uh, contention, and, and it's not particular to Long Beach, it's anywhere, that people will go to a place and they'll hang out at the hotel, but they'll never leave the hotel or they'll never leave the resort. This is an opportunity to leave the resort and get on the beach and help out. 
That's right. And here in Long Beach, there's so much, so many days of sun. I think 245 or whatever it, that number is, 345. Um, so it is all, almost always sunny here. And uh, the beach uh, where we happen to have our beach cleanup is also right next to Rosie's Dog Beach, um, which I started about 18 years ago. And it's named after my English bulldog, Rosie, who passed away. And what happens on Rosie's Beach? Well, people can bring their dog, and they can be off. The dog can be off leash. The now we're talking. Off leash. <laughs> no, we need a lot of people on leashes. You yes, know that. Yes, I do. Yes. So um, this is Rosie's Dog Beach. It's four acres, and it's the only off leash legal dog beach in Los Angeles County. And how many people met on that beach and got married? A lot. Um, I knew it. The dog is the is always the magnet. Yeah. So on a, uh, a sunny weekend afternoon at one time, there's probably 200 dogs at one time. It's that popular. It's by far the most 200 popular. dogs with their single owners. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and av- single and available. And uh, yeah. pe- people, and they all have that thing in common. They're uh, dog lovers. So they appreciate um, dogs and um, the, the, and respect the, the breed. And they're there to, to recreate the people and the dogs. And... Being the transplant from Alabama, what was Long Beach all about for you? How did you get here? I came uh, first to North Hollywood because of a relationship, and then I was in North Hollywood for two two years, and then and the relationship uh, headed south. Yes, and I literally headed, headed south, south to Long Beach and uh, it fa- uh, fell in love with it and have stayed. So I've been in Long Beach for about twenty one of the twenty three years that I've been in California. Was Long Beach essentially an accident for you? Sort of, I would, um, sort of an accident, but I think there, God always has a perfect plan for our life. And I think it was meant for me to be here because I have found my place. I could not be doing all of the things that I'm doing back in Alabama. Um, all this nonprofit work, I, I put on 60 events, contests, and projects a year. So, and I couldn't do that in Alabama. There's not an, there's not a big enough audience. Yeah. So here in Southern California, there is. What's the website? Uh, my website is my name, justinrudd.com, and Rudd is R-U-D-D. And that's how people can find more out about about CAT. Absolutely. And you go there, and uh, we, all of the volunteer opportunities will be there as well. Now, let's say I don't have a dog. Sure. Can I still show up with a dog? Will you provide me a dog? <laughs> yes, you can borrow my dog, POTUS. <laughs> His name is POTUS. That means President of, of the United, United States. States. Yeah. And POTUS will go with anybody, probably anywhere, and especially if there's food involved. One of the other good things about Long Beach is that it is legal for dogs to be on patios. A lot of uh, cities don't allow dogs on patios. So if you're bringing your dog um, on your vacation with you, take your dog on patios at restaurants. So it's a dog-friendly restaurant location. Yeah, uh, all over the city. The restaurant owner uh, or manager can decide whether or not they would allow dogs, but most of them do. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. For those of you who are not familiar with Long Beach, it's one of the great hidden gems of Southern California, a city that has really, really become a a go-to destination in the last couple of years after being forgotten for many years, not just on the radar for many people, but it's such a cool place. It's 50 square miles in area, and it's home to more than 460,000 people. It's actually the seventh largest city in the state of California, and by that definition, it's also a melting pot. And as a melting pot, that leads me directly 
to my next guest. She's the executive director of the United Cambodian Community, and she was born and raised in Long Beach, California. Her name is Susanna Sim. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So I remember, and I'm going to date myself now, okay? Mm -hmm. I remember going back to 1975 in the fall of Vietnam and going, I was working for Newsweek then and going back down to Camp Pendleton to rescue some of our own Vietnamese who used to work for Newsweek who we airlifted out. And what a, what a large community now has developed in Southern California of Vietnamese, Cambodians as well. Correct. So Long Beach has the largest population of Cambodians outside of Asia. Can I ask a stupid question? Yes, go Why ahead. Long Beach? Why Long Beach? Because yeah. of the weather is very similar to the Cambodian uh, weather. But also, uh, back in the early 1970s, there was a small group of Cambodian students that were studying here at Cal State Long Beach and Cal State LA. And there was already, they were already here. And when the Khmer Rouge happened, they, they remained stayed. here. Mm-hmm. And exactly. so a lot of the family members um, that were refugees immigrated here to the United States and had family members that were still here in Long Beach. So, for example, my family, we were sponsored by a family in Kansas, and my family lived there for three months during the Halloween winter and, time. And, and you were too young to remember. You weren't even born. It was before my I time. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> and it was too cold, and so we had cousins that lived out here in Long Beach. Exactly. But, the, but you know what? That's how you discovered Kansas. Mm-hmm. That's very true. <laughs> now, is Long Beach a sister city with Phnom Penh? It is, it is. And so there is a sister city uh, with Phnom Penh. And um, I don't know too much about that relationship, but there's a lot of uh, connections around business uh, between the Cambodian community and here in Long Beach. By the way, uh, 2018 was the year that the, the final member of Paul Potts Khmer Rouge died. Mm-hmm. He just died a couple of weeks ago. And what a horrendous time that was. For those people who were either too young to remember or who just never got around to see it, go see the movie The Killing Fields. Uh, Sam, uh, Sam Waterston, I think. Uh, watch that movie. It's, uh, it's all true, and it all happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you go to Phnom Penh, uh, there is an amazing museum. I've been there uh, where you actually see the atrocities that were, were, that were perpetrated on so many innocent people and families that were destroyed. And they've kept those cells just as they were so that people will never forget. It's sort of the Cambodian version of Auschwitz, if you will. I mean, it's. Right, and it was a school before, and it they was. turned it into uh, a place where they tortured and executed individuals. So, when you say you're the largest uh, community of Cambodians in the state of California, in the nation. In the nation, oh my God. How many people are we talking about? We estimate about 50,000 Cambodians. So, can I ask a really stupid question? Go for it. The best Cambodian restaurant in town has got to be here. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, I believe so. Uh, but um, for me, um, my favorite place, if you're very adventurous and really don't mind uh, trying new foods and stinky foods, I would suggest going to Crystal's Thai Restaurant. They're located on 10th and Orange. It's a little hole-in-the-wall place, but they have home-cooked meals there. But that's Thai. It, they... They, they, blend, it, they blend it. They say Cambodian Thai because us Americans are afraid to try new things like Cambodian food. And so, so the, oh, they're hiding behind Thai. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, to attract new people to try their food. Mm-hmm. By the way, a good branding message would not be 
if you don't mind stinky food. Yes. <laughs> I just, I'm giving you a suggestion on that. <laughs> but that's why I said adventurous. All right. Uh, so yeah. what's the stinkiest food on the menu? So we have something traditional called pahok. And what pahok is, it's a fermented fish paste. And we use that in diff- we use it as an ingredient. And so a lot of times it's integrated with other meats like pork, ground pork, or ground chicken. And there's something called pahok gati, and we eat it with vegetables. But also you can put it in soup. Uh, but when you step your foot into Cambodia, that's what Cambodia smells like to me is is pahok. And so uh, if you really want to experience uh, Cambodian food, true Cambodian flavors, you would try pahok. Um, but there are other... Um, I want you to hold that thought for a second because I'm going to tell everybody the donut secret when we come back, all right? Yes. We've been talking to Susanna Sam from the United Cambodian Community here in, in Long Beach. And we were talking about the fact that it's the largest group of Cambodians in America, Correct. right here in Long Beach. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about the food. Mm-hmm. And... And is Cambodian food, by definition, very spicy? No, uh, but there's a lot of flavors, so it's spiced. Um, so it's very similar to Thai, Vietnamese, and Chinese food. Um, so we have a lot of stews and soups and noodle dishes. Uh, another place that I really enjoy is a Cambodian breakfast spot that's called the Phnom Penh Noodle Shack. And they were first opened in 1985, and uh, it's literally a little house and all the locals all the Cambodian residents and families will go there and it used to be one big table and you would eat at the table as a family um, since then they've expanded and they've actually um, their their children has taken over the restaurant and so now uh, Phnom Penh Noodle Shack has a new location in Cerritos California which is about 30 minutes away from here you know you talk about the noodle shop a little known secret but I'm gonna reveal it now mm-hmm. most donut shops in California are owned by who Cambodians. <laughs> Why? So back in the 80s, a lot of our community members, they came here with nothing in their pockets um, and living in high poverty. And one of the ways that the Cambodian community members, they're very resilient, very resourceful. And one of the ways is that one community member learned how to uh, make donuts at a local donut shop and learned the business and the model and so he taught it to other Cambodian families and he's now known as the Donut King. Uh, I forgot his exact name, Um, it's not off of the top of my head right now, Um, but he um, really helped establish Cambodian donut shops and so if you go to any donut shop here I guarantee you they're probably owned by a Cambodian family. And a little known fact, they have high profit margins. Correct. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a little overhead, uh, which that means a lot of our community members would be able to invest in a business and they would have their families work the business. Um, and then from there, they'll be able to uh, make money uh, to help support their families. Now, of course, I've noticed this in, in donut shops not owned by Cambodians. I don't see a lot of fat people working there. You know why? Because they don't they don't eat the stuff they're making. They don't, and they're always they wake up very early uh, to bake their donuts, and they're hard workers, and so it just takes a lot of labor to own a donut shop. Tell me about the United Cambodian Community. So, United Cambodian Community has been in the. Long Beach community for over 40 years. It's the second oldest Cambodian organization here in Long Beach, and it was first established by Cambodian refugees who were um, helping themselves, um, and then from there established into a social service agency. Uh, Now we're in our 
41st year and we created a new mission and vision statement. Our new mission statement is that we elevate the Cambodian community through local engagement and leadership that embodies Cambodian cultural values. And our vision is a flourishing Cambodian community whose valuable contributions really um, benefit uh, the the broader community community and also future generations. Mm -hmm. But I think one of your other mandates must be to educate idiots like me about your impact, Mm -hmm. your culture, and your contributions. Right. I think for us Cambodians, usually we have a survivor mentality. And back in Cambodia, a lot of the refugees, the way that they survived was that they made themselves invisible. And we're trying to shift that now is that we really want to make the Cambodian community visible and really highlight our cultural richness and vitality. Um, One of the things that's really important for us is that the Cambodian community experience is a lot different than the broader Asian community. Um, The Asian community is usually identified as the model minority, Um, and the model minority is that uh, they are people of color that have high education and high they have high economic opportunities and are doing well in our society. Uh, But when you actually disaggregate the data uh, from Asian to Southeast Asian and specifically look at the Cambodian community, we look very similar to other communities of color. We look very similar to the African community, African American community, and the Latino community in terms of we have high poverty rates. Uh, We also have uh, low graduation rates in which 52% of our Cambodian adults do not have Uh, high school degrees, and only 16% of our Cambodian adults have bachelor's degrees or higher. How do you change that cycle? And that's how UCC is addressing our issues. I think it's uh, through multiple strategies because there's intersectionality of what causes these issues within the Cambodian community, but also the structure and the society that we live in today. Um, There are a lot of Cambodians moved into central Long Beach, which is which is known to have high poverty and high crime rates. Um, and so the way that we address it is looking at uh, policy, making policy change, but also investing in the next generation, being able to have trauma-informed care, um, but and also have cultural competence services. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.